Welcome back to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In this episode, I will talk about the rough, roughly the second half of The Rolling Stones by, by Heinlein, which was published in 1952 uh, in Boy's Life, um, later published as part of one of the Scribner Juveniles. This is number six. Uh, so we're halfway through the official Scribner Juveniles, if, you are, if you're keeping track. So, um, you know, my feelings on this book are largely unchanged from the from the first half. I think the second half is a lot better than the first half. It's a lot more interesting. Um, I still think Hazelstone is the is the character that sort of saves this novel. Just her personality and her 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 assertiveness and her uh, humor. Uh, all of that, just her personality is so strong and such a big part of this this book. Um, the other characters, I still think Castor and Pollock um, are Paul and Cass, as they're often called. They're essentially just interchangeable young boys. I think that's going to be an ongoing problem with these juveniles. I don't know if there's a way around it. It's just like they do different things, but at the heart, they seem to be the same kind of person, even when they have different interests. It's just they have the same kind of personality and characteristics throughout. And here we just got two of them, um, which I know they're intended to be different. It's just when you actually read it, you don't feel it. They're, the characterization's not quite quite there. Um, maybe I've read, like I, I think I said this last time too, I, maybe it's because I read so much Stephen King I've been spoiled by the awesome characterization. Uh, and so, and when you read these juveniles like back to back, like I have been, it really hits you. Maybe if you really did read these a year apart, as you're supposed to, um, it you wouldn't feel that quite the same way. Um, I, I, this is just a problem with genre fiction, maybe overall. Um, so, who else do we have? Uh, well, Roger Stone, uh, he doesn't undergo much of a character arc, uh, except I do think he's he. To some degree, he becomes a better captain um, by the end of the book, a little more, um, um, you know, authoritative, uh, more patriarchal even, um, which is not always a good thing because I, I think that that's an issue with this whole book is patriarchy because the character of Mead and Edith, Edith is uh, Roger's wife, uh, Edith Stone is a doctor. Um, the whole family is competent, but we still have the, the women you know, cooking and, and taking on those maternal roles. So I, I think that's a bit of an issue. And Roger is, is always the patriarchal figure, but he never really has to, like, question that. I, I mean, he's never forced to come to terms with his, his patriarchy and his patriarchal attitudes. I think that's missing from the book. It's a little bit more of an engagement on that. Um, Hazel could have maybe provided that challenge, but... She's 
that's not really her role. I mean, she's such an individual. She's almost like just hanging out on this ship because she wants to. Um, and we, we get the sense, and it's kind of implied at the end, she's going to do what she wants anyways at the end of the day. Edith is much more bound to them, and, and she has her moments where she does her job as a doctor and takes her risks against the wishes of Roger. But ultimately, just the whole the way the whole thing is structured, you know, Roger is the captain, and that's never really questioned at any point in the novel. Um, Mead, I think, never is developed as much as I would like um, in this book. The older daughter, she's kind of the least developed. And then we have Lowell, or uh, the, the youngest son, uh, who is important at the end of the plot and in the story as, a, uh, as the big danger moment. Now, this is a kind of a... This has been, it's getting a little annoying. Again, I, maybe this comes from reading Heinlein one after another. Is in the juveniles and in some of the stories at this time, the lost person, the person lost on a planet. It just keeps getting reused here. Here we have someone lost on the asteroids. Um, and and it's, it's Hazel and Lowell uh, are lost and have to be saved at the end. Um, in, in almost every one of these juveniles, there's a scene like that where a character is sort of lost and has to be found or finds his way out. And um, there's been short stories like that, like Nothing Ever Happens on the Moon or uh, The Black Hills of Luna. It's just a, it's something Heinlein is using to create tension in the story, which I think this story doesn't actually need it. It is a good moment. I, I do think it's well, it's probably done better here than in some of these other stories. Um, because we actually have real stakes and real risk where Hazel, we think it's dead for, uh, until, you know, until it's revealed she's not. She just made it last minute. She, she managed to survive. But, you know, she's, at one point she seems to sacrifice herself or she intends to sacrifice herself. It's a little ambiguous, and, and Hazel kind of laughs it off as I was never in any risk. But, you know, she was, if we're realistic about it. So... It works pretty well in this in this novel. And again, if it wasn't so close to these other Heinlein stories that use that same device, I, I think I'd be less bothered by it. Um, so anyways, that's that. my overall feeling about the characters and how they interrelate and the themes of this family exploring the solar system. I think all of that is pretty well done and, and holds up in the second half. I think what makes the second half really better is the places they go. They, they visit two places. This is after the epidemic on the other ship that Edith helps to cure. And then uh, they go to Mars. They have to be in quarantine. And Roger, missing his wife, uh, goes voluntarily into the ship, forcing himself to go into quarantine for whatever the two weeks. Um, I think they're on um, they're in Deimos, or one of, one of the moons of, of, of Mars, which is like the, the anchorage for the ships. So he has to be in the in the quarantine. Meanwhile, uh, Hazel uh, and the kids like have to find housing on Mars, and the whole experience of Mars is really really fun. I think uh, this is it's not a good place. Mars is presented as kind of horrible in a way. It's very bureaucratic, a lot of rules. Of course, it's going to get in the way of free enterprise. In fact, there's a chapter in here called like free enterprise, and um, you know, Heinlein is making points about regulation and overregulation and, and the benefits of free market capitalism. He's doing all that. Uh, that's on his mind in these days. It's, it's the 1950s. 
and he's a fairly conventional American writer on some of these themes. Um, he's, you know, he's not bucking the trend in radical directions. Um, but he's, I don't know, like, some of this makes sense. I mean, I mean, I, I actually agree with the regulations that the Martians put down on, on some of the things. It, it seems their economy is in a very precarious place. So the, the point of protectionism is to develop, help develop your own economy, right? And a bunch of brats from Luna flooding the market with, with luxury goods, you know, maybe that's something the government should be concerned about. And a, and a tariff, a high tariff is not like the end of the world. If you're a good business person, right? These are things you can you work, work around and know about and, and manage. So there's a little bit, it's a little compl too complainy on, on these things. Um, but, but it's not just that. I mean, other things seem to make Mars kind of just sort of shitty in, in the story. For instance, rents are super high and you can't get a hotel. They end up having to go way out in the outskirts of town to get a hotel and it's still super expensive. All these fees that they're constantly having to pay bureaucrats. It's a tourist trap too. Like what they do seem to have that's well-developed is, is based on tourism. It's basically like a frontier economy in many ways, but it has this kind of uh, a strong state managing it, um, protecting it. Maybe it's more Earth-like in that way, I, I, I suppose, compared to the moon, which is independent of Earth. And we have, uh, um, and then we just have all this kind of tacky little tourism. Um, now, Castor and Pollux, their character throughout this whole thing is, let's make money. They're very, very boring throughout the story. They don't seem to change much in this motivation. The first page, they want to get into business. They want to get into trade. And then by the end, they're still thinking, like, how can we sell stuff out on the rings of Saturn? It's, it's like they're always, like, thinking about their business interests and trying to make a, a buck uh, throughout. And it gets them into a little bit of trouble, but they don't really learn from that experience. And, in fact, they're, they're vindicated in that experience. So they, they're emboldened in a way. And they always figure it out. And, and the, even the, when the book acknowledges like the difficulties they would face in making money uh, in the way they're trying to make it, uh, they, they end up on top because they're just so smart. They're just such bright kids. And so I actually think the biggest weakness of the story is the Castor and Pollux relationship. And it, we start to see it really, or Castor and Pollux uh, characters. And we are, are start to see it really in the, the Martian part of the story. Now, of course, the original plan is to sell bikes. Uh, they brought the bikes all the way from, from Luna, purchased them, and they're going to sell them on Mars, where they can be useful tools with lower gravity and all that. They're, they're useful for getting around, but also can be for commercial purposes. But they learned there's not going to be a market for bicycles because uh, there's a vast, vast emigration from Mars to the asteroid belt, and, and equipment and people are going there. And so there's not going to be much of a domestic market. And they, they ask around about this, and they, they even go to a bike shop and try to sell the bikes to mm -hmm. a, a dealer, an easy um, you know, plan. And then, they, and then they find they're not going to be able to sell because there's not going to be a domestic market for bicycles. So it takes them about two pages to come to Plan B. Um, and Plan B, since they're such, so smart and they're such good capitalists, they go to plan B almost immediately, and that is to uh, find essentially one of these tourist shops 
and um, sell them the bikes, sell the, the owner of, of the bikes so he can do tours. Now, they try two approaches. One is to just straight up sell them the bikes, and the second is to lease them. Um, and they're very good negotiators, at least one of them is. Um, Heinlein makes a point of, of how persuasive they are. These, these people are just going to be like business people when they grow up. They're not going to be like cool scientists or, or explorers or, or whatever. They're going to be on some kind of, they're just, they're just going to be merchants going back and forth. And that's going to, that's going to, I guess, going to be their life. Um, it's not the most exciting thing, but maybe it's for some boys. Um, you know, make a buck. That's a, I guess it's a worthy goal. Anyways, the so they try two ways with this uh, shop owner. One is just buy the bikes and you can rent them out to tourists. So there's not going to be a commercial or practical use for residents for bikes, but it will be something. These are new fancy bikes, so tourists might want to use them and you can rent them out, make back your money pretty quickly. If he kind of waffles on that and then they suggest maybe you could just uh, – but you could go into business. We get half the profit and you do the operating cost and take the rest as profit for yourself. And then he kind of backs on that and, and instead just uh, they end up selling them. Okay, easy plan. Now, I think one thing Heinlein does really well here is use the quarantine as a way to kind of change our point of view to Roger Stone. And then he gets out of quarantine and the boys are in jail. Hazel and me tell him, uh, the boys are in jail, arrested for not paying import duties and and trying to avoid it. And also there's a complaint by the shop owner against them for, you know, not paying the import duties on it. And then there's a trial. We get a nice little trial scene um, where I guess there was no, like, public defender on Mars for the boys. So uh, Hazel has to become the lawyer. Um, and she actually... You never know if she's fully serious, but she says, like, I was a lawyer at one point. Um, and in effect, it, it seems it's just she's a, so super competent. She can do whatever she wants. And she's going to try the case um, in front of the court. And it's basically about the question before the court is, did they know that they were selling bikes? Did they know that they were that they should have paired a tariff and. And, and that, and, and they admitted that they were selling bikes and they didn't pay a tariff. So the question is, like, do they have a legal obligation to pay a tariff on the bikes? And the, that comes down to whether the bikes are luxury or cons like industrial equipment kind of thing. Because no tariff on necessities, but a very, very high tariff, like 40, 50 percent on luxury goods. And these are bikes that are going to be used for tourism so they are luxury goods hazel argues that the consumers of the bikes are going to be tourists and that's going to put money in the pockets of the martians so therefore it is a um it's a, it's not a luxury good it's not like it's a luxury good for consumption by martians it is a sense a luxury that'll be consumed by the tourists but not a luxury good in the same in the same way. That's our argument. And the court goes along with that and the boys are freed from the fine and the, it was two, it was the fine and the tariff. They didn't have to pay either of them and they get out of jail. Um, it is kind of surprised. It is, you are surprised when you hear that they're in jail um, and 
and Roger's re- reaction to that is kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of, oh, again, they're in jail. But it, it does create a little tension in the story at, at a time it maybe needed it. Um, but it's a little over the top, too, Hazel uh, kind of jumping in like a, like a TV show lawyer. Saving the day with arguments that I'm not even sure would fly. I, I, I don't know. Um, it's a frontier place, so the judges can kind of do what they want. And maybe they made the right decision. Anyways, they are able to get away with some profit. They also acquire the flat cat at this point in the story before they move on to... They decide to go to the asteroids. And, and the plan there is to sell high-cost foods to in the asteroids. So Castor and Pollux have their profit, and they already think, you know, next stage is going to be selling luxury goods to the miners on the asteroids because we're even getting farther into the frontier at this point uh, more and more frontier as we move along like from the moon to mars to the asteroids and then finally to the rings of saturn but that's only implied that they'll go there we keep moving farther and farther to frontier areas and i think heinlein does a pretty good job of giving us the feeling of being in progressively more frontier regions mars like Luna is, is special because it's Luna and that's got a special place in his heart and in his philosophy. But Mars, maybe, you know, still very bureaucratic like Earth, but a little more frontier in its in, in material conditions. And then we got uh, the asteroids, which are like a true, like almost like a mine, like, like, like the 49ers or something. It's almost like the, the old West feeling we get with a lot of single men. Uh, not much. Uh, they they they're minerally. They have mineral wealth. They're they're like prospectors, individualists. Um, but at, at one point, actually, Hazel gives the boys a history lesson, saying like, "Who made money in the gold rush?" This is an interesting part of the story. And they say, "Well, the miners must have made money." And Hazel's like, "No, they did not make the money. The people who made the money was those who sold services to services and goods to the miners." Right. The ones who they're the ones who ended up with the gold that was mined. Right. And they made the most profit. So Hayes was like, what you want to do is be is cater to the miners uh, and sell them things. And so it's her idea, ultimately, that leads them to buy these this this luxury food. But they also take on board a flat cat. A flat cat is obviously this has been compared to tribbles and it's a lot like a tribble. It seems likely to me that Star Trek borrowed this this idea. It looks a little bit different. It's it's like a it's like a triple, but it's flatter. Um, but it's the same kind of concept that they're they just kind of sit there and purr and reproduce very rapidly uh, if you give just a little bit of food. So they get one um, uh, named by Lowell Fuzzy Bridges. Uh, so that's his name. That's our that's our one kind of central flat cat for the rest of the story is Fuzzy Britches. But they feed him, and Fuzzy Britches has, um, you know, he has kids, kittens, they're called, and then those kittens have kittens, and eventually there's like hundreds of these um, flat cats throughout the ship, and they're eating the food, and forcing the crew to eat the luxury food stuffs that they purchase for sale on the asteroids. So once again, we have a crisis not only on the ship, uh, but a crisis to the to Castor and Pollux's business plans. And this is like the second time this has happened. The first time it was the plague, where they're th- threatened with they have the threat of having to lose the bikes. Now it's a flat cat, going to eat all the food. Um, so 
Edith figures out the solution uh, once again. Uh, she uses her medical expertise to figure out that basically you can, they're Martians, so if you put them into Martian environment, lower the temperature, they'll just hibernate and they won't eat. So they have to round up all the, all the tribbles, all the flat cats, put them in the cargo hold and lower the temperature, and then they just sort of vegetate. Right, but by, by this point, a lot of the food's already been eaten. So they don't have something to sell the miners on the asteroids anymore. Now, Roger will always point out at these moments in the story that this is a pleasure cruise. We're just a family journeying around. Money is secondary to it. Right? And, and meanwhile, they, they're, they're still doing the, like, the TV serial stuff. I, I didn't mention that again, but that's kind of not a major plot point in the second half of the story. It is hinted that they're going to bring back their characters and for, for a second serial or something, but keep them on as writers. Give them some income while they're voyaging around the solar system. But Castor and Pollux, they want to make a, they want a business opportunity where they, where they can. So they're, but they're, so they're pretty broken up about this. They do solve the problem of the flat cats, though, keeping only fuzzy britches, um, but being careful not to feed them too much so he doesn't start reproducing again and recreate the, the issue. Easy solution. So more than that, though, it's a, it, the flat cats solve another problem, which is what do we have for the people on the asteroids to sell them? Um, so they go to the asteroids, they get to the asteroids, and the asteroids are really, really cool and well-developed in the story, I think. The characterization is good. We have people from different cultures. It's very much more just frontier. Um, you know, there's people who don't even fully know English. Uh, there's different, you know, some people really struggling to make it out there. Some people doing a little bit better. Uh, the language is more vulgar. It's just much more of a feeling that we are in the Old West almost. And, and I think it's well done uh, in this part of the story. Um, they, they meet some locals. Uh, Edith has to save someone's life who was injured. So again, her medical expertise comes into play. And then um, the flat cats come into to play as the solution to what can we sell the, the locals. And so Castor and Pollux figure out that they'll, people will buy it. But the problem is, as soon as you sell them a flat cat, that fat, fat, flat cat will reproduce and you'll have, you won't have a market to sell them anymore because they'll basically be free. So this is really cheaply resolved by Heinlein because I think this is, anyone who knows the biology of the flat cat would figure this out. I don't have to buy this. There's already flat cats on the asteroids now. They'll just, there'll be tons of them soon enough. Um, but instead they try to like use advertising. So they, they use an advertising campaign, really aggressively pushing the sale of the flat cats, having like, you know, presenting it as a sale. You know, this is, these are standard advertising techniques, I would say. You know, get, have a huge markup and then cut the price in half. That kind of stuff they do. Um, and it works. And people come to buy the flat cats. They sell some of the chocolate and other things I have left too. Some of the remaining food stuff. And, um, and able to turn a pretty big profit. Um, so now we're quickly coming to the end of the story where all that's really left is the crisis with uh, Hazel, and me, uh, Hazel and Lowell being lost in the asteroids. Um, and this is because Castor and Pollux didn't properly secure um, the, the machine, the machinery they went off in that was actually damaged. 
Um, so Hazel didn't know it would go, it would be broken uh, and leave them stranded. Um, for that, Roger, uh, when he returns, finds out about this. He actually like puts them in the brig, the ship brig um, for this. But Castor and Pollux, who know the serials really well that Hazel has written, you know, figure out where she would have went and figure out where how, how to find um, Lowell and Hazel. And now, meanwhile, Hazel has like uh, went into this like deep meditation, kind of a, a Hindu ritual or something to save Lowell's life, to make sure that she's not consuming the oxygen on the ship, giving them time to save the day, the others to save the day. And they do. They save her. Um, Edith does her CPR on Hazel. And Hazel wakes up at the last minute with a joke on her tongue. Like there is some comment that Roger makes about, wow, she's, you know, she's gone. And then Hazel, you know, immediately wakes up with a, with a snarky line on her, on her, on her lips. I forget what it is. I don't have the physical copy in front of me. It's, um, it's a nice moment. It's a little unrealistic, obviously. I, I think this whole, this whole, uh, bit is is fantasy hazel just makes it delightful it's just hard to kind of suspend your your disbelief when you when you hear these when you when you when you read it and then um you know they decide to go on to the to the um rings of saturn and keep exploring um hazel talks about staying behind and the story's kind of open-ended, like all the juveniles. I think one nice, th- one thing that's in common one, about all these juveniles is that they are open-ended. And I think this is a key thematic point for the author, is that you know a juvenile novel like this shouldn't have a definitive ending because these these young men are just starting their life. The problem is they're so boring as characters; they just don't grab you. I, I think everyone around these characters are more interesting. In between planets, like the dragon is more interesting than the the protagonist, the the professor he meets who gives him the ring at the beginning is more interesting than um, than the character. I, I think even in like Space Cadet, the other boys are more interesting than our protagonist. It's um, uh, Willis is more interesting than the main character in in Red Planet. The space Nazis are more interesting than main characters in in Rocketship Galileo. I think that's. I don't know if we're gonna if there's an escape for this. Does Heinlein just need to do a better job of writing young boys or get out of this trope uh, of like the singularity of what these boys are like? I know that's his ideal type, but he's got to change it up a little bit. I, I really hope he does. Um, I think Starship Troopers doesn't fall in for this. I've read that one. I haven't read the next six Juveniles, um, so they're they're completely new to me. I don't even really know what they're about. So our next juvenile is uh, Starman Jones, um, which I think, is this the farmer? Yeah, this is like an Arkansas farmer who goes to space. That's what I just know from the, from like the back cover kind of description of the, of the, of, of the book. Um, but I get the sense it's the same kind of character. And I hope it's not. I, I hope the next six juveniles, we do see some, Change. I don't want to say it's formulaic because each of these are very distinctive novels. They're, it's not. It's hard not to remember the plot of these different novels distinctively. It's not like the plots all mushed together. It's that the, the main character mushes together, and that is not good. 
in in my view. I think, yeah. You know, and it's especially weird that Heinlein can write much more interesting characters. Like, Hazel is fascinating, but why can't he, like, whatever is in Hazel, maybe it, it, it's something that can't be put into a boy. Um, or maybe I just find boys not that interesting. Maybe that's, maybe it's on me. Maybe I just don't find young men as interesting as other people might. Having been one, I don't know. Anyways, we'll see. Um, so uh, that does it, I think. That's all I'm going to say about this. Good book, though. Definitely worth reading. It's, it's no con violence, no tension, no conflict. It's unique among the juveniles so far in that. Um, I guess there's tension, but there's no violence or, or real conflict, except there's annoyances that our characters face and setbacks, but there's not really any conflict among the crew. The closest you get is Roger and Edith bickering about Edith doing her, her job as a doctor. But um, anyways, next up, we'll talk about Year of the Jackpot. This was published in uh, Galaxy Science Fiction in 1952. It's the only other work from 1952 that Heinlein um, published. So we'll, we'll do it next before moving on to Starman Jones. So anyways, let me know what you think of, of the Rolling Stones and... Leave me your comments, send me an email, uh, and I'll see you next time with uh, The Year of the Jackpot. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.